Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back. It is Thursday, October the 6th, 2022, 7 a.m. here in Spotswood, and what a delight to be with you this morning. I hope that everybody's week has gone very well and that you have a nice weekend ahead of you. I hope that part of that weekend is that you will be in worship at a Bible-believing church. If you are local to our area, we would love to have you join us at Old Providence. However, um, if you are not, then find yourself a Bible-believing church close to where you are, uh, if at all possible, and go and be a part of that church. If circumstances do not permit that, if and sometimes they don't, and you uh, have online access, we would love to have you Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Our live stream service will be right here on Facebook, and then very shortly thereafter, usually by 11.30, this is posted on Sermon Audio, or at least our uh, our Sunday morning services. So I welcome you, but again, uh, online is no substitute. Television is no substitute. So just throwing that out there. Again, it's good to be with y'all, and I appreciate um, your, your participation in this time. What a blessing. I, I hope this has been a blessing to you as we have gone through the gospel according to John. We're really making our way through. Yesterday, we finished the narrative of Lazarus, and we just dipped a toe into the aftermath of what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? What we see and what we saw yesterday was that the ante has been upped significantly. Okay, um, by the time Jesus has this interaction with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he's already built a reputation. The reason we know that is, number one, Bethany is right outside of Jerusalem. Okay, so a very connected town in terms of the goings-on of, 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 of Judea. But it's right outside of Jerusalem, and the people know who Jesus is. When he gets back, they know who he is. And not only that. What you see before he raises Lazarus from the dead, you see this conflicted group. Verse 36 of John 11, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? I'm not going to go back over the significance of those verses again, other than to point out that this shows that the people recognize Jesus as a performer of wonders and miracles. They knew about the signs, okay? He had built this reputation off of doing these things, so much so that the people equated Jesus with these miraculous works. Now, the reason I said that the ante has been up significantly is we're not just dealing, and, and I say that as if it's not a big deal. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to insinuate that, but at this point, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, this is not just about blind people seeing again. This is not just about people that had demons no longer having demons. This is not about people that are lame walkers. It's not about any of that stuff anymore. Now, Jesus has raised someone from the dead. No. As a result, things have been upped significantly in terms of Jesus's relationship with the Jews and especially the Jewish rulers. Yesterday, we just, again, we, we just dipped our toe into what really is the heart of the matter. Now, up until we get to John eleven forty five, you always wonder, 
right? It's like it, you may have suspicions about why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, why the Jewish rulers have such a major problem with Jesus. Is it the I am statements, right? This coming Sunday, that's, that's what we're going to talk about. Is it is it the fact that Jesus evokes the name of God? Yes, that's part of it. They believe he's blasphemous. Is it the fact that Jesus amazes people everywhere he goes with not only the signs and wonders, but he amazes people with his teaching, his knowledge. Nobody can compare to him in terms of knowledge. And they don't even know. Jesus didn't go to the rabbinical schools like they went to, right? Is that why? Yes, probably. That's why they hate him, too. Is it because Jesus calls them what they are? Remember back in John chapter 8, you know, they said, our father is Abraham. He said, no, if your father was Abraham, you'd do the things Abraham did. Instead, you do what your father does. You're a liar and you're murderers, just like your father the devil was from the beginning. Do they hate him because Jesus calls them the sons of hell? Yes, probably. But y'all, the real root of why they hate Jesus. The real core of why they have got to get rid of him, and the they, again, is Pharisees, Sadducees, Jewish rulers. The reason they've got to do this is because of what's building around Jesus. Ultimately, it's because of what Jesus does and how the people turn to him. We found that out yesterday. In John eleven forty five. And this is where we'll pick up today. So let me pray and then we'll dig in. Our Father, please be with us now. What an ugly, terrible side of humanity we will witness this morning. That your son in all his glory and majesty came and did wondrous works before people, but people were more concerned about their own little fiefdoms, their own little kingdoms, their turf. And they missed it. Oh, Father, what a sad, terrible thing, and yet it still goes on. Help us to see your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to see how it applies to us today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read, uh, I just want to bring something out. <clears throat> You know, there are many ugly sides to religion. There are heinous things have been done in the name of God, right? Um, not appropriately, not accurately, because God would never endorse certain things. But, you know, we look back at these grand statements throughout history, and we can be very quick to indict. We can be very quick to shake our heads and say, what is wrong with these people? Don't they see? Don't, don't they understand? As it is with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, this is one of those instances where we can look at them and we can say, don't you realize that Jesus just raised a man from the dead? Don't you see what he's done here? Well, before we take it that far, I mean, we have the account of it too. People are no less impressed by this today as they were 2,000 years ago when Jesus did it in person. I know you might say, well, yeah, this is the Bible. It's not them actually seeing it. It doesn't matter, y'all. 
talked about this already. It's like the Lazarus and rich man. Yeah, Abraham said to the rich man, look, there's no point in me sending anybody to talk to your brothers that have the scriptures. If they don't believe the Bible, they're not going to believe anything else. They're not going to believe if somebody was even raised from the dead. And it was true then. It's true now. But nevertheless, why do the Pharisees, we're, again, we're on the central question. Why do the Pharisees do what they do? Why do the Sadducees do what they do? Why does this plot to kill Jesus increase so significantly after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? This is what we got to yesterday. We're going to pick up here today. Verse 45, it says, therefore, and therefore is there for the reason that Jesus just said to Lazarus, come out and said to the people, take off his grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Therefore, Many of the Jews, verse 45, who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest of the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. All right. And what they're about to say reveals their whole issue with Jesus. All those things we talked about before, him calling them the sons of hell, all these things, they didn't like him because of those things. Previously, you see them trying to discredit him. A couple of times they say we need to kill him, but now their minds are absolutely made up. Why? Verse 48, they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One word can describe why the Pharisees did what they did. One word can describe their ugliness, their wickedness, their diabolical nature. One word tells us why they decided they had to kill Jesus. You know what that one word is? Turf. Turf. You see, when Jesus was going around and doing miracles, they didn't like it. When Jesus was going around and calling them the sons of hell, they definitely didn't like it. You know, when Jesus was doing all those other things we've already talked about, didn't like it at all tried to discredit him, did all sorts of things to try to make him look foolish. It always backfired on him, and they definitely didn't like that. But when they finally are convinced that Jesus is not going to stop, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they can't deal with it. They won't have it. Why? Because their turf is now in danger. Their little kingdom their little peace. They are worried about what they just said. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, what they missed is what Jesus was doing. What they failed to see was the majesty of God on display in that Jesus was doing the impossible. They should have recognized the signs that Jesus was doing. And then said, this is the Messiah. And everyone, and, and not only do we believe, everyone should believe because all of the scriptures point to his authentic identity here. He's the one. He's the one we've been looking for. 
This is bigger than Rome and Israel and all this. No, people need to believe. But instead of that, they were worried that the people would put their trust in Jesus. They were worried that as a result, the boat would be rocked, that they would lose their place of prominence. And then as a result, they were worried that Rome would come in and completely destroy their nation. As if Rome hadn't already done that, but that's, that's for another Bible study altogether. But again, the issue is turf. Now, this is one of those passages like I was reading before that we can look at and we can say, I just can't believe that the Pharisees would be that foolish. I just cannot believe that they would be so blind to what the Lord was doing, that they were willing to kill the Messiah in order to preserve their little kingdom. Don't be too surprised, though, because y'all, every single day, you know, I read a statistic recently that 7,000 churches are closing every year in the United States. I've heard that 150 Presbyterian churches are closing a, a day, right? And I don't know if that is still accurate because I heard that statistic some time ago, but they're boarding them up left and right. Why? You know, there's lots of different reasons. I think personally, one of the biggest reasons is that the lampstand has been removed to use the language of Revelation, right? Churches quit preaching the gospel, and so the Holy Spirit removed the lampstand. And if the Holy Spirit removes the lampstand, you'll never out-preach it, you'll never out-pay it, you'll never out-program it. Once the Holy Spirit's gone, your church is dead, whether you recognize it or not. And sometimes there are worse things than closing the doors to your church. That slow death, the life of a zombie, where you just creep along can be even worse than saying, you know what, it's time to close up shop. But nevertheless, y'all, there's a whole lot of churches out there that either close or split because somebody's turf got threatened. Somebody's own little kingdom. And I'm not trying to go from preaching to meddling here. But it happens all the time. Why? For the same reason that the Pharisees had to kill Jesus. People take their eyes off of what the Lord has done, off of what the Lord is doing, off of what the Lord could do, and instead they decide to focus on something else. And I don't want to go from preaching to meddling. I'm not even going to give examples, but I don't think I have to. You know, church is split over the dumbest reasons. And I'm just, and, and I don't care if you get upset at me saying this, but they do. Somebody doesn't like fill in the blank, or this person's feelings got hurt, or this person didn't get their way in this situation. And so people decide to try to destroy the church. They never set out to do it that way but they're willing to bust it into pieces. They might refrain from going. They might refrain from giving. Why? Because their turf has been threatened. That's exactly what's going on here with the Pharisees. Why they want to kill Jesus? Because they're worried the Romans will come in and take away both their place and their nation. It's wicked, y'all. It is wicked. We can point it out with the Pharisees, but there's some other point now to do. Nevertheless, I'll leave it at that. Verse 49, 
Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, y'all are wringing your hands over Jesus. Just kill him. Just kill him. That's all you have to do. Remember in John chapter 8 when Jesus talked about them talking like their true father? Satan, the liar and the murderer from the beginning. Caiaphas speaks of murder as if it's nothing. It's as if he said, oh, we don't have enough tomatoes this year. Well, next year we'll plant some more. It's as if he said, oh, there's a mouse in the pantry. Well, I'll just set a trap and we'll kill it. That's it. Murder is their go-to language because they're murderers. Murderers murder. And this is not new. Remember when Jesus turned and looked on Jerusalem? Remember what he said? He said, oh, Jerusalem and Jerusalem, how I long to draw you to myself, yet you would not listen. You would not have me. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who what? Stone the prophets. Kill the ones that God sent you. Same thing here. And it's interesting, the language that Caiaphas uses, right? It's, it's, it's euphemistic. He talks about Jesus dying for the nation. <laughs> it's not about Jesus dying for the nation, perishing for the nation. It's about them defending their turf. You see, when people defend their turf, they will do all sorts of things. Because if your turf is what's really important, you will employ a sense of pragmatism that you never saw coming. You will find yourself doing things that you never thought you'd do. Because what's most important when you got turf is not what's right, not what's biblical, not what pleases God. What's most important is that you protect your turf. That's all that Caiaphas is doing here. It's better for one man to perish than for the whole nation to perish. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus, Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now, this is a very interesting thing here. There's lots of different things that this could mean. You know, was this a genuine prophecy from Caiaphas, the high priest? Maybe. You know, we find all sorts of examples in the Old Testament of God using people to prophesy things, and they don't have a clue about it. They do not understand what they prophesy. Right? Most of the time, that's not the case, but a few times we see that it is. We see all sorts of interesting things with, with Balaam and, and, and others, right, who have an intention to do one thing, but God makes them do another thing. So is this genuine from Caiaphas? Uh, maybe so especially when you throw in this little tidbit in verse 52 about Caiaphas uh, prophesying that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, but also for those scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. You know, that's what Jesus did come to do. That's what Jesus's death and resurrection did in fact accomplish. However, it wasn't exactly what Caiaphas thought. 
you can tell from from the language Caiaphas thought that he was talking about Jesus unifying Jews that were outside of the nation of Judea right out outside bring them back in you know the Jews had been dispersed that's probably what Caiaphas thought we know that Jesus came to die for all those who would trust him Jew and Gentile alike and as a result from Romans we know that therefore there is no Jew nor Greek male nor female we're all one in Christ so this prophecy about Jesus was right. The problem is that Caiaphas interpreted this prophecy as, again, Jesus has got to go. And the way that Jesus goes will bring the people together. But you see, Caiaphas thought it would bring the people together in despising Jesus and recognizing Jesus as a false messiah. We know that because after prophesying this thing that seems true, Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Instead of placing their faith in Christ, recognizing him as the Messiah, the one that would unite the Jews, that would bring all of God's children together that had been scattered, they viewed him as the problem and that he had to go. This is why I'm not fully comfortable saying this is an authentic prophecy. Right? It could be completely manufactured by Caiaphas. Um, Again, I don't know. I don't think it's terribly necessary, but I know what is manufactured, and that is their conclusion that they reached because of the prophecy. You know, it goes back to the simple principle, and y'all have heard me say this, and I, if I get hit by a bus today, and if you remember nothing else that I ever said in my five years and two months at Old Providence, remember this, God never condones what his word forbids, ever. God never condones what his word forbids, Let's just say this was a genuine prophecy, that Caiaphas really did receive this from God as the high priest. The conclusion that they drew does not match up with God's word, because God would never condone murder. That's what this is. It's just murder. You can call it state, you know, capital punishment, doesn't matter. It's murder. And God would never condone what his word forbids. If there's ever any doubt about how to interpret something, the interpretation of God's word, you should always interpret God's word by God's word. So if you come to something obscure, like a prophecy revealed, and you don't know how to interpret it, you come up with the answers, and then you say, all right, well, which one of these match up with God's word? That's what they should have done. And so when Caiaphas said, all right, so Jesus is going to do this, and that's why we need to go kill him. That's why we need to murder him. Immediately, they should have said, mm, that doesn't fit with the rest of God's word because God never condones what his word forbids. We can't just murder him, right? We're wrong. They didn't do that. And this is where the conversation ends with Caiaphas, with the, the Sanhedrin. But in verse 54, we see Jesus again. And what do we find? We find that therefore, Jesus no longer moved among, about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. 
Now, there are things to comment on in what we've just read as far as, far as the ceremonial washings go. Number one, Jesus didn't need any ceremonial washing because he was clean. And number two, it shows that the binding nature of the law was never in all these things that were made up. But nevertheless, we see that they have it out for Jesus. Jesus is not in hiding. Jesus has simply gone to Ephraim. Jesus is very wise in how he conducts himself because it's the same language that could be employed here that has been employed elsewhere. His time had not yet come, but soon enough it would. Now, that's the end of John chapter 11. What is our focus for today? What devotional thought do I leave you with? Examine your life for turf. You know, turf doesn't just destroy churches, it destroys relationships, it destroys family. It can destroy a workplace environment, most certainly it can do that. Examine your life for turf and recognize what your turf really is. You know, there's lots of places that talk about the freedom that we have in Christ, but it's in Mark chapter 8 that we find out what our rights are in Christ. And you know what our rights are? Our right is to take up our cross and die daily to ourselves. Turf and Christianity are mutually exclusive. You know, as a follower of Christ, we recognize that he's the king, that all things belong to him and we're simply his loyal subjects. There's no room for turf when everything belongs to Jesus. And aside from that, if you're able to identify turf in your life, if you're willing to have that courage, try to take the time to evaluate what you might have missed. If you are involved in a church turf situation, are you examining the things that God has done there? Giving an honest glance at the way the Lord has been looking? Are you willing to dwell on what the Lord could do there? And are you willing to really explore the results, the consequences of turf, what it can do. You know, one day we'll have to answer for these things. So take the time to do that self-evaluation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We thank you that you have given us the right to lay down our lives and follow him daily. Let us leave no room for turf. Forgive us for where we have planted a flag that we had no business planting it. Let our flag be the flag that says for Christ, crown and covenant. Not alone. Father, as we look at the Pharisees, how easy it is to conclude their wickedness. Yet let us not be so bold that we never evaluate ourselves. Thank you for Jesus Christ that he was willing to suffer this derision, to slander, all of these things, because he was on a mission. It was on your mission to save us from our sins. Let us trust in him and him alone. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being a part of this time. And it was a long morning here. Sorry for, for going so long. I went on to preaching and then I went on to meddling. And I appreciate your patience. So let me tell you this. This is the last devotional. Ooh, hold on a second. Until October the 24th, um, I have to attend a conference. I have other denominational duties that will prevent me from being able to offer devotions for the next two weeks.
So the next time you'll see me will be Monday, October the 24th, Lord willing. Until then, I hope you all have a very pleasant October. I see Alice, good morning, and there's Elizabeth and Becky and Monica and Rose. Thank you all so much for being a part of this time. Lord willing, we'll see you Sunday morning, uh, those local or if you're online, and then again, October 24th for devotionals. Until then, have a great October.